Welcome to the best podcast. We are back with the wonderful Stephen King. Now, Stephen King is somebody I met through the Voice Geeks conference. I uh, heard him present his um, his dissertation or his study, and then we started a conversation later, and we couldn't stop talking. And in fact, we have to always be careful when we get together because <laughs> it can go for hours. So. Thanks for coming on board, Stephen. Oh, pleasure. The podcast is really about finding out your journey as a singer and as a teacher and and whatever else you do, which we're going to delve into today and kind of how you got there and what's helped, what's been a hindrance. And it's really to help other teachers understand the really variety of journeys a teacher can take or a singer, even a singer can take. So we're going to start a little bit at the beginning because I think it's really relevant to your story, isn't it, and how you ended where you are now. So what was the beginning of you getting into performing? Okay, well, the the beginning, uh, so I started dancing when I was about five and I then went to the Royal Academy and then uh, the Central Ballet School up until I was 18. Uh, Then I... I had always kind of sung, I'd always played the piano alongside that. And then um, when I was 18, I got a place at ArtsEd doing the musical theatre BA. Uh, So overjoyed, woohoo, off to ArtsEd. So off I go, very intense training. In my second year, I um, tear all the cartilage through my knee. Uh, So that uh, kind of put pay to the dance aspect of my life, which up until that point was basically all I'd known in any kind of great capacity. Uh, So that, I I took time away, uh, visited Dr. Woolman, who was was at the time the best knee surgeon for athletes and dancers in the country, probably still is, a lovely guy, and um, looked at the kind of uh, journey for healing and Basically, it was uh, I was never going to have full function. I was never going to have high impact work um, without pain. And I just thought, is this, you know, genuinely, is this what I want out of life? Do I want to slog it in, you know, in the chorus uh, in 42nd Street um, in pain? Hmm. Uh, probably for not very much money and probably for not very long before I had to find a new career. Or certainly one that complemented what I had done, and, and so I kind of got got thinking, and um, and so I, I trained as a massage therapist, just you know off the cuff, just went, oh, I've got a bit of money, let's do that. I've been teaching um, at a stagecoach, singing, you know, just to pay the pay the bills, really, uh, and then um, then I kind of got a bit good at that. Uh, and managing, you know, I'm basically a, a panto dame. Uh, so, you know, all the kids, they, they all thought I was hilarious. I'm not sure how much they learned about singing. No, I think they did learn about singing. Um, and because I was a pianist, so that just all started to um, accumulate. So I was teaching five different stagecoaches and I musically directed a show for a Amdram Society. And um, so, some of the cast were like, oh, do you do, uh, do, you do singing lessons? I thought, well, I do now. Uh, so, um, so then, you know, that that kind of started to slowly build up a, a you know, amateur voice studio. Um, 
And uh, I I started doing the um, professional practice PG cert with Debbie and Voice Workshop. Um, and uh, off the back of that, I started doing some university lecturing and uh, and so on because now I had you know a, a postgraduate qualification. Um, and uh, I'd I'd really kind of uh, you know learn learn the craft what's the expression cut the chops is that it i don't know uh, <laughs> uh, but i don't my stripes uh you know in pedagogy managing these classes of 30 kids who didn't want to be there really um and trying to make it engaging and fun so uh so then when you're dealing one-on-one with a professional that's just super easy because they want to be there so they're hanging off every word you're saying so i kind of went oh hold on this is this is a bit easier uh and um the, the massage was kind of taking a back seat. And um, then I was working on a series of The Voice uh, in Belgium. And uh, we had 10 minute slots each for the for the singers in the blinds. Um, 10 minutes, what can you do in 10 minutes? And I was thinking, man, I've got to be, I've got to up my game for, <laughs> you know, 10 minutes. So, um, there was stuff that I knew I could get out of them that I wasn't getting out of them in 10 minutes. And that wholeheartedly frustrated me. And Nick Dorian, who was the other coach, lovely guy, was like, look, don't worry about it. It's 10 minutes. You know, what can we do? They had to also run their song three times, by the way, in that time, you know, crazy schedule. So, um, so I think we saw about 180 blind auditionees for coaching in a week. I, I think that was the figure. So that was in 2016, and um, I, I, and it was like, oh, I don't, I don't really, um, I don't, I don't really know what what else I could have done in a coaching or pedagogic context. Um, so I um, started doing the uh, kind of more shifted the the postgraduate research into vocal massage, and um, looking at massage as a paradigm and going, okay, well, what does massage say we can do? And basically, massage says we touch the skin and that's it. And so, so this idea that, you know, massage can increase blood flow. Well, it can't really uh, because it's not your heart. <laughs> your heart's very good at that. It's not going to decrease toxins because uh, we have organs for that. So, so when you actually boil it down, massage is about touching somebody in a meaningful way, and then having a you know a, a resultant force neurologically, chemically, for healing. Uh, but I knew that that these um, these high level ath- athletes were getting massage. You know, Usain Bolt gets massage, and so I kind of went, okay, uh, maybe elite singers need vocal massage. And of course, the big boys at Physio Ed have been doing laryngeal physiotherapy for 20 years or something like that you know um but it's really painful really painful and um and so i started looking at the biopsychosocial models of pain in a myofascial context in in kind of layman's terms that's you know when 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 you're touched what does that mean to the body uh and and biomechanically it means the mechanoreceptors on the skin register something uh, what that is, we're still trying to work that out, really. We've got about five mechanoreceptors that we know of. They detect lateral stretch, movement, vibration. Uh, they detect deep pressure. But that's all they do. They're, they're sensory. 
the feedback. Uh, so, so we we know that that the the, the psycho part of the biopsychosocial model of pain management or you know treatment uh, is that if you're paying, let's I mean I'm ninety five pound for forty five minutes. So if you're paying that money to come and see me, chances are you believe that what I can do can help you. Uh, and that's, you know, I'm not selling my, myself short here by going, oh, it's all kind of in mind. But uh, ultimately, there is that element of if you're paying money that you believe is uh, for, you know, a good cause. Uh, and, you know, you're you're taking that time out of your day, which, let's be honest, how many times do we actually take time for ourselves as performers, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and you come to do this, you uh, you're, we're going to see an improvement. So that's the biopsycho bit. The social bit is that nobody really wants to be in pain. Nobody wants to have dysfunction uh, unless you do. And there are whole, that's a whole other demographic of, of treatment and rationale and clinical rationale that I don't really have uh, time to go into right now today. But it, they're an interesting demographic. Uh, so, so people want to get out of pain uh, and they want to go back to doing what they're what they're doing so in just me touching them all of that starts to manifest itself and coming back to my kind of you know thoughts when i was in on, on the studio floor on the voice going i wonder if that would have done something mm. uh, because i know that when i was a kid and i used to fall over my mum used to rub my knee better mm. when i started looking at the history of massage i mean Massage has been around for 4,000 years, 5,000 years. It's been documented on cave paintings, we think, from like 9,000 years ago. We, we don't really have the substantial proof, but we think. So I'm going, well, there must be some merit in it if we've been doing it for that long. Um, and, and, you know, this idea that it could improve function, uh, I, I was really interested in. The research doesn't support that. Uh, but... What, what the research does support is that different forms of manual therapy could improve, uh, it could restore function that we may have lost through tension. So when, when I'm looking at it going, okay, well, if they've got excess tension, they're not going to be working at their maximum. And, and like me and my knee, I, I was in pain. Uh, and, and, you know, I went to the surgeon and he went, yeah, we can do the thing, but you'll still be in pain. And I thought, what? that's not fixing me. Really, it's not. That's not. That's not doing it for me. Uh, fine, the tissues might be fixed, but the issue is not in the tissue. The issue is ne neurological. Uh, so that's kind of my whole journey into it. I now run a, a multidisciplinary voice clinic in uh, London, in Covent Garden. That's where I'm now, uh, and um, I've got a private voice studio in Soho, just up the road. So um, I do uh, pre and, and post surgical treatments. Um, uh, you know, with with singers normally dealing with muscle tension dysphonia, and then maintaining elite and healthy vocalists. You know, um, does that answer your question as to how I got into it? <laughs> A little bit, in the sense that how did you make that connection then from massage into vocal massage specifically, and what was how did you? Um, do yeah. Okay. So, so I realised there was a uh, so I realised there was a gap in the market a pain-free, biopsychosocial-based model of treatment. Because 
I don't deal well with pain. My pain thresholds are low. I mean, like, you know, I step on a plug and that's a 10 out of 10 for me. Do you know what I mean? Um, so the laryngeal physio that exists and the laryngeal osteopathy that exists is so painful. Uh, I didn't want to go. And I thought, well, I can't be the only one. Uh, you know, and sometimes you hear of people who have, you know, been physically sick afterwards through through the pain. Um, and um, that's that's not what works best for my body. Uh, and it does work best for some people. You know, this question, does it have to hurt to help? Sometimes, actually. Some, for some people, it does. That's part of that biopsychosocial model. You know, I'm in pain, therefore it must be good. But that doesn't work for me. I, can't, I, like, I like to be kind of like, there, there, it'll, be, it'll get better. Um, so I wondered if there was a way in which I could include this kind of myofascial BPS perspective into treating singers uh, and whether, that, whether there would be a market for it. So I kind of put the deposit down on this place and just hoped, really. <laughs> and um, here I am 14 months later. So, you know, I think, I think we're all good. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is interesting, the demographic of performers who want pain-free treatment. I think that's, you know, um, it's massive because when they come to me, they can then go on stage that night. Whereas after laryngeal physiotherapy or, or, or osteopathy, the recommended thing is at least a sleep cycle and 24 hours to let everything rest and settle. Mm. Um, and I, from my perspective, I, I wondered if there was a way in which we could create an uh, you know, efficacy in a treatment, but without that level of invasion and... Um, so, so that's that's kind of where it was was all was all based in terms of the link of my my massage and myofascial training, linking into vocal massage. Mm. And do you still do vocal coaching? Yeah, I do. Um, I now now I kind of work with the people who are in clinic. You know, so I take them through um, a, a rehabilitative journey uh, normally. But yeah, I do some I do some vocal coaching, not much artistic coaching. There are other people who do it better, so I say go to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but I like to think I kind of know what muscles do and 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 maybe functional anatomy, mm-hmm. you know, maybe better than the people who do the artistry stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, from a rehab point of view, you know, rehabbing voice is about balance, balancing a voice, and, and making sure it's sustainable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, massage really does that in with these and then i tie that in with you know la <laughs> so you know it's a really multidisciplinary approach and um i've got a mindset coach now who works at the clinic as well who um who then kind of completes that biopsychosocial model of care mm-hmm. um you know because when when singers get injured they think they failed and that's just so not true you know 80% of singers get injuries so you know, this this kind of like, oh, my God, I've got an injury. I'm a failure. I'm no good. Um, you know, and I mean, like, some things have been working 10, 12, 15 years, and they get an injury, and then they stop. And I go, yeah, yeah, but what you were doing was good, obviously, because you've worked for, like, 15 years solid. So let's let's get you back to that. Oh, it can't be done. It can't be. Of course you can. Mm. Of course you can. So, um, so yeah, so that's, that's, that's mainly what I do, yeah, in terms of the vocal coaching. Um, which um, can be quite monotonous, you know, depending on the presentation. But if it's muscle tension dysphonia, 
you know, we're, we're looking at just, you know, increasing some nice transglottal airflow and just letting everything balance. Um, so, for, so facilitating that, really. Mm. So how does the singer get to that place in the first instance? What, they need to come and see me? Mm. <laughs> yeah, well, so hyperfunction, hyperfunctioning, uh, causes hypertension well hyperfunction can cause hypertension so you know if we're looking at being super functional and then a little bit more on top of that the muscles aren't designed to do that you know classic example i'm, I'm really interested at the moment in the arytenoids and the the posterior cricoarytenoid uh, in terms of its you know functional anatomy its primal anatomy is there to stop the arytenoid from dislocating that's that's really why the muscle is there. But we oh yeah, so uh, yeah, so you mean the posterior cricoarytenoid muscle? Yes, yeah. stops. You know, is a is a barrier for that for uh, a rear dislocation of the of the arytenoid cartilage. Uh, you know, and, and so when we look at that primarily, we go okay. Well, that muscle is just for that, but for singing, it. Is responsible for maybe uh, you know medialization, compression, uh, uh, abduction, depending on whether it's working with the interarytenoid or not, uh, or, or the LCA. So, you know, we're looking at a very you know complex and dexterous thing that we have to do as singers. Mm-hmm. Yet, if we've got hyperfunction on that, the muscle is only thinking, "I'm just going to not dislocate the arytenoid," <laughs> and so. I mean, that's a really specific example that just came to my head. I'm not sure that made any sense. It's probably really rambly. Uh, but but it, it, in terms of what that gives us as an illustration, you know, we, this, is, this is a valve. It's a protective system. And so when we're, looking at, when we're looking at it primarily like that, it's just trying to keep us alive, trying to keep stuff out of the lungs, cough reflex, you know, that kind of thing. You know, we all know this. This is the you know general anatomy one hundred and one of the larynx. But when you kind of look at that in terms of its nervousness, and you know the innovation of the um, the super, uh, superior laryngeal nerve and the recurrent laryngeal nerve branches of the vagus nerve, um, you're you're starting to look at a survival mechanism that can go into overdrive if certain things are not balanced in the performer, particularly the mental state. I think is what we're now reaching as a conclusion as a whole. Uh, and I'm really pleased to see that kind of vocal pedagogy is moving out of this minutiae of muscles and into the brain. Mm. And go, you know, if the performer is, you know, uh, neurologically unstable and going into this with all kinds of hormones rushing through their body going on stage and they're not calm, uh, then the body just goes, I know what this is. A tiger is going to eat you and I'm going to lock you up. Mm. But that's fine for three or four or five or six years, seven years, ten years, and then suddenly, you know, your hemorrhage or, or whatever, you know, because of that primary muscle tension causing a secondary vocal pathology, and and so, um, so you know, that's I, I would love to get to a stage where we, as a, a as a you know circle of pedagogy, could look at it and go, can we make this more preventative, um, so that I don't need to exist. Uh, it's a bit existential, but uh, we'll go with that. <laughs> yeah, so 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 that really, and and you know, looking at that uh, in in terms of how how they get to me. Normally, they they get ill, you know, they get laryngitis or something like that, and then they uh, have to sing through it, 
because they've got a contract or a big show. Uh, then they feel terrible for doing that. And also they then start to feel terrible about their voice because it's not coming back. And they keep singing and auditioning and, and whatever. And then, you know, six months passes and they've, they've only got an octave left. Uh, and that's the point where they reach out to somebody like me and I have to then go, no, 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 you need to go and see an ENT surgeon, a specialist voice clinic first, see what's going on. Uh, I would say seven times out of 10, maybe it is muscle tension dysphonia, you know, where they haven't got to a stage of an intrinsic pathology, but you know, just the muscles are just low bearing. Um, and, you know, with the multidisciplinary approach of massage and coaching, we can often, you know, sort that out, really. Mm. What about things like, uh, especially in the West End, mm. the kind of costumes they wear, the kind of movement they have to do re repeatedly? Yeah, so, so this is actually a really interesting thing because, obviously, having trained as a dancer for, like, 15 years of my life uh, at quite a high level, I really appreciate what a dancer has to go through in order to, to do anything successfully. And um, that that often comes as a result of increasing vocal load because your abs are having to work in a certain way, your traps are having to work in a certain way, um, and, and, you know, you're out of breath. No matter how fit you are, you know, doing the 14-minute battle solo of Don Q is going to, you know, you're going to be out of breath. It's a grand allegro, and it's really grand. <laughs> you know, so, so you look at that and you go, okay, well... There are, there are certain limitations that our, that our body has. And so with wigs particularly and heels, I mean, we know from, um, I think, Amelia Rollins' research on heel height um, and looking at the height of the hyoid bone respectively, that there's a, there's a direct correlation there. And so if you're having to wear heels like that, you're going to be disrupting the, the you know, quote-unquote resting place of the larynx, um, which could then, you know, impact how you belt. If you're then wearing a, you know, three or four pound wig, uh, you know, with all the boning and, and, and all that and a mic pack up there as well. I mean, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't take a specialist to anything to go. That's got to that's got to have an effect. And, and normally the effect is on the muscles that hold up the head, you know, so that the um, uh, rectus capitus muscles, uh, the sternocleidomastoids and the traps, well, maybe not so much the traps, but the traps everybody's traps are tight in london because it's london uh, so so you know <clears throat> and when you look at the you know the, the distance from the scm to the larynx and i just on tuesday had the um honor of getting into the dissection room at king's college um and you know pulling apart a larynx and and pulling apart i was you know gently easing dissecting apart. i think yes. is the term. Uh, yeah 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 but you know me uh, <laughs> and um, and seeing the deep layers of um of, of fascia and, and the striations of that and how that interlinks with the the uh, surface of the thyroid cartilage you know, when, when people say that they're, you know, the sternocleidomastoid's origin to insertion has no impact on vocal function, I think they mean it would be best if they didn't. But I think in terms of functional anatomy, everything is so close and so interwoven in this area that they can't not, particularly if, as there are secondary muscle of respiration lifting the chest, particularly if we then look at, you know, dancers who are out of breath, maybe wearing a corset and a wig. I mean, 
that's just a nightmare. There's a nightmare. Where, you know, it's like, you know, the clinical presentations of that, everybody in the Phantom of the Opera, you know, you could go around each show and go, I know what the clinical presentation of that is going to be. That Groundhog Day uh, had a, um, a whole song where everybody had to look over their left shoulder and all of the cast have had injuries uh, with that clinical presentation of turning. And so, you know, when I ask people their, their history and they say, oh, yeah, I've seen Groundhog Day, and I go, oh, how's your neck? <laughs> Oh, funny you should ask. <laughs> you know, so, so those things, those musculoskeletal injuries or presentations, will I think you know now that seeing that dissection and doing it, and kind of you know separating things and going, oh my god, it's really all the same thing. Mm-hmm. Well, it always made sense to me. Well, yeah, yeah, I know, absolutely. But then you know, you are you are you, Lynn. You know, <laughs> I have to see it before I believe it. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. It just made sense to me that if you had, you know, if the if there was any kind of uh, long term contraction, it's going to have to have a knock on effect somewhere. Absolutely. And even uh, the other thing too, which and this was part of what my my um sort of my awakening when I did my master's was how interconnected everything is that even an ankle injury can, you know, put the larynx out of whack eventually, you know, if it's chronic enough. So, yeah, I think that's fantastic. What what do you think singing teachers could be doing to help raise awareness or help prevention or help guide their students What would be some of the um, signs and symptoms that you think would be really useful for teachers to know? Okay, yeah. No, I, I, I get you. I just, I think there's there's three prongs to this attack. I think one is, is a systemic overhaul of vocal health education. Uh, and um, the my wife, actually, for her master's, did research on training institutes in the UK of how much vocal health education there was. Uh, how much and, or how little? <laughs> how little, right, for sure. So of, I think she contacted 86 institutions, of which only nine responded. And of those nine, the average was one hour for every three years of training of specialised vocal health education. Well, I mean, that is not good enough. It's just not good enough. So you have to – so you're relying on your teacher – who might be a repertoire coach mm. to know some red flags of vocal pathology. It's unfair. Mm. You're relying on your musical director. No, it's unfair. That's not their remit. It's not their, you know, they they can whack out Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto, but they, they they might not know what the, you know, signs and symptoms of hemorrhage or, or nodules or polyps or whatever are. So I think, I think that's the first thing. We need to assist... Systemic overhaul, um, and I think you know that will happen in the next couple of years when we start to look at vocal health as an insurance policy, and not as a kind of you know uh, as a as a seminar. You know, as we're looking at mental health, you know, we have mental health first aiders now in institutes. Great, great people who know the signs and symptoms and who can refer on. More importantly, you know, mental health first aid is about what not to do actually isn't it rather than you know what what you do do uh, and and we need vocal health first aiders that's what we need mm. um, so um 
I am working on a little uh, project to perhaps make that happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, but early days, and I've just had a son who you know is five months old now. So so you know, give me time. Uh, give me time. The second prong of this three pronged attack is the abundance of acid reflux diagnosis. I am sick to my charred teeth of acid reflux diagnosis uh, because the, the, the problem with an acid reflux diagnosis is, is that we get prescribed a meprazole. Uh, and I mean, this is the way that the Western world views medicine. Uh, which is all about treating illness, not about making people healthy, uh, which, you know, I know you and I both, we, you know, we have the, the same philosophy. So I feel like I'm preaching to the choir here, Lynn. But omeprazole doth not solve the problem. Also, from a manual therapy perspective, it's kind of bullshit anyway. Am I allowed to swear? Uh, I just swore. Uh, so <laughs> um, you can bleep me out. Because the sphincter at the xiphoid process, if we have acid reflux, or if we're producing excess acid in the stomach, uh, the only way that's gonna come up the tract is if the, the, the xiphoid sphincter is dysfunctional. And where is the xiphoid sphincter, for those so, who don't know? Am I allowed to get my, my chest out? Well, the only thing is that we're not doing a video. It's about here. <laughs> So describe, describe that in, in so I've got I'm, I'm kind of coming to the the bit where my ribs meet my sternum mm-hmm. and then coming down to the kind of top abs and it, it's kind of in there you got to see my lovely abs there Lynn weren't they, weren't they marvelous line tell everyone they're excellent they're um, gorgeous <laughs> so so that that top bit kind of middle bit of the abs if that sphincter is dysfunctional then all of that acid is going to be coming up for sure. That's not the problem to be solved by a meprazole. That's going, to, it's going to put a plaster on it, as far as I'm concerned. I'm not a medical doctor. Hey, I'm not a medical doctor. Uh, but, you know, this is, in my experience in working with people, I can get rid of an acid reflux diagnosis in about six half-hour sessions by working in that, that area. And uh, what are you doing when you're working in that area? What's your intention? Uh, well, basically the same thing I do when I work in any area, which is just uh, pressing around until I feel a bit that we agree is useful and then hanging out in there and seeing how the body reacts to that. <clears throat> um, it's And, and the, the current literature, I'm actually writing a, a research report on this now, a literature review of the current research on uh, treating uh, globus pharyngeus as a result of uh, acid reflux. <coughs> The omeprazole has very little success rate at solving any of these issues. Very little. Mm. <clears throat> Manual therapy in conjunction with omeprazole has a hugely high success rate. Again, that biopsychosocial. Somebody in a white coat is giving you a pill and they say it's going to help you. And then you go to somebody else and they press you in the area that it hurts or that, you know, is dysfunctional. You know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I think we need to be really careful with that as well as a, as a diagnosis because now that we're getting more chip on the tip endoscopes, we're getting rid of what I call the digital noise of endoscopic evaluation. So like this kind of red light, these old red light endoscopes, which is shedding so much red light on the internal walls of the, the pharynx, it's going to make everything look red. Yeah, as soon as you move the chip on the tip endoscopes, some people who 
have had that acid reflux diagnosis from a fiber optic endoscope, then go to chip on the tip and there's no redness. Well, that's because it's white light. So, so then you go, okay, well, we're limited by the tools in which we can diagnose. And that's terrifying. Mm-hmm. That's terrifying. So you need to go to somewhere with a chip on the tip endoscope, which is Lewisham or Manchester, you know, because they're like 120 grand, these scopes. Mm. So, so that, uh, sorry, I'm ranting about acid reflux, but I, you know, it, it kind of does my nutting. Um, and singers come to me and they say, oh, I've got acid reflux. And I go, okay, so what are you doing about it? I'm taking a Meprazole. Is that working? No. The, the, third, the third of my three kind of pronged attack around, you know, what, what we can do to arm singers um, is treat them nicely. Uh, so, you know, that sounds kind of like a bit tongue-in-cheek, oh, Stephen's having a laugh. No, Stephen is not having a laugh. What, what Stephen is saying is that um, when we... I love how I'm talking about myself as though I'm not myself. Uh, <laughs> is that the, the, the kind of... The buck stops with the managers, with the producers, with the... They get to make the decisions. And if a singer is not healthy, they shouldn't be performing. Mm. That needs to change. That needs to be written into contracts. There needs to be, again, systemic change. Um, Which is fine when there's a contract. Absolutely. I mean, and that's a whole other issue, isn't it? Yeah. Um, the, the, the other aspect of that, and that's kind of an A and B perspective to this, is that we have this, um, we, we have this issue with how we talk to singers. Uh, and my favourite thing is people come to me and they say, oh, my senior teacher has said I've got the most jaw tension ever in the world that they've seen. Uh, and all right, the intra and inter-reliability of palpation as a form of diagnosing tension is actually quite rubbish. Uh, but, you know, when you start to get patient feedback, you start to understand that actually they have a very functional TMJ joint. And it's probably that the singing teacher <clears throat> doesn't have the... Uh, the required pedagogy to take them to that next level to solve that issue in phonation. As a defense mechanism, the singing teacher or whoever will uh, put that back onto the client. Uh, This is cool, this is fine, whatever, but uh, it is a curse. It's a curse. We curse ourselves by doing that. By going, I've got the most tension ever in my job. I have people come in and they go, my traps are the worst that last massage therapist told me that they've ever seen. And I'm going, can you move your scapula? Yeah, cool. Can you move your shoulder? Cool. Yeah, great. I think they're all right. They look at me as if I'm mad. Mm. But I'm not about perpetuating these kind of like diagnoses, these pathologic, semi-pathologic diagnoses. I just, just reinforce it with some nice words. Mm. I go, do you know what? That is that is really coming along. Well, yes, and and because of the stuff that I'm doing at the moment um, in hypnotherapy, one of the things that we talk about is the rules of the mind, and one of the rules of the mind is that it believes and acts on everything that we tell it and show it. You know, all the pictures it sees and all the words it gets. So if you're constantly saying, "Oh, you know, my shoulder's killing me," or um, "I've got the worst tension ever," you know. Yeah. You beget that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So language is a very important, absolutely very important uh, perspective, uh, aspect of, of um, how we work as teachers. I totally agree with that. And I can remember it, uh, there was a point when I was 
working with students and uh, the pedagogy or the method that I trained in, which was speech level singing, didn't start with breathing, which is where I started when I was doing more classical. So everything was about the breath and support and all that, you know, spent hours doing breathing exercises. Still couldn't get through my passaggio without flipping. <laughs> and, and it, you know, it was, that's the, was the tradition. So I, I ended up when somebody would come in and they'd, they'd say, oh, yes, my breathing's terrible, I'd go, oh, that's weird because you're still alive. <laughs> so well, something must be going okay. And actually probably if you just don't think about it, your body will do what it needs to do. Yeah. I mean, you know, if there's habits that need addressing, you know, that are extreme that are hampering, then I will address it or point it out. But sometimes all you need to do is point it out and, and habits yeah. change. You don't have to do endless exercises. Um, well, in particular in the contemporary world, <clears throat> excuse me, it might be a little bit different in, in classical, but certainly in the contemporary world, you know, I don't think we need to be that focused on the breathing. And yeah. it's really interesting about the words thing because I definitely feel that musical theatre is a real, you know, what's the word, uh, can't think today because it's Sunday, it's my day off. Um, they, there is definitely this culture of pulling people down. Yes. And feel like yeah, well, there's, there's, there's great competitive uh, nature, uh, uh, you know, among the scene. Competitive's scenes. one thing, but I'm talking about teachers to students. Absolutely, yes, it's very toxic. Very yeah. toxic. And uh, there's definitely this culture of we're going to pull you down to build you up. I think it happens in dance as well, doesn't it? Yeah, I think that's probably where it stems from, is that most of the singing teachers will have trained as dancers, etc. Uh, and then, you know, they, they think that that's the right way to work. And uh, we know from a lot of brilliant research about student-centred learning uh, that actually that isn't the case. Mm. So... Yeah, so what... I mean, these. I really love your three. What are you calling them? Three. My well, three pronged attack. Three pronged attack. I think that's fab. So going back to the singing teachers, recognizing, you know, if they haven't been able to get to some sort of education, are there some warning signs that you feel teachers should be able to pick up? In um, the yeah, okay, so I'm not a, you know, I'm not a medical doctor or a speech therapist, so, you know, this is totally, uh, uh, you know, what it is. It's not a tome. Um, but I think if you've got hoarseness that's going on for a long time, mm. uh, if you've got a uh, lack of, you know, re sudden reduction in range, uh, if it takes you hours to warm up, uh, if you've got pain, I think that's enough to just go any one of those, but especially all four of them, mm. to go, maybe this. Because how else would you think that in your body, you know, um, I was just working on a pianist just now who was who had done some kind of brachial plexus symptoms of, but had been diagnosed with carpal tunnel. But the, the onset was too dramatic for it to be carpal tunnel. But the GPs are not MSK specialists. Cool. So, you know, I'm there to just get him out of pain, right? But... He came to me because he's a pianist and because his arm is hurting. 
great. Great. So when singers' throats are hurting, they go, well, I must have, I must have worked hard. <laughs> and, and that's not, that's not it. Mm. That's not it. So, you know, so I think we, we, we need to kind of, you know, any pain, hoarseness, you know, sudden reduction in range. Yeah. I think those are the, would you add anything to that? No, I, I often just say any changes in voice that haven't been like that before or restriction in phonation in some way, you know, yeah. whether it's can't get loud, can't get quiet. Yeah, absolutely. Always breathy, always hoarse. I mean, I'm always amazed at how many singers, especially who've never had any education and come from the the contemporary world, um, say, yeah, I know this horse is, hoarseness, it's normal for me. It's like, no, hoarseness is not normal. <laughs> Where does that idea come from? And, of course, there's also, especially in the jazz world, this idea that actually sounding hoarse is very sexy and very jazzy. Uh, so you're yeah. sometimes working against those kind of beliefs. Absolutely. So um, where... Where do you, th I mean, obviously the, I love this idea of vocal health first aid. That's, that really sparked my little brain, um, <laughs> of course. <laughs> and, uh, you know, where would, where do you think your practice is going? Obviously you're continuing to work with, with performers, singers, doing the massage, yeah, you're getting into, why are you doing, the, why have you been doing the dissecting? Anything in particular? Oh, just because, you know, just piqued my interest. Oh, yeah. I tell you what, I did want to talk to you a bit more about that. Um, because I find the whole thing about the arytenoids and their movement, you know, these sliding, rotating, yeah, um, yeah. tilting, it's like why? I've, I've asked so many people, inclu including people like Ingo Tietze and, um, uh, oh, my gosh, um, anatomist in Cardiff, Alan. Uh, Alan Watson. Watson, about why they think the arytenoids move like this, you know, what's the origin of it, what's the purpose. Uh, it just seems a very complex amount of movements to do for these two little things that kind of almost seem like a like an afterthought. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and to have so many muscles dedicated to them as well. Um, so I have a theory, I have some theories about it. I'm interested to know whether that was delved into it or when you... Yeah, I mean, it I was, uh, you know, when I, so I asked, Mike Hutchinson, this, uh, and um, who's been an anatomist at King's College 50 years in December. Um, so he's got, I think, did you say five and a half thousand dissections under his belt? I mean, that's crazy, right? Um, so, yeah, so look, I think the transverse arytenoids muscle, the transverse arytenoid muscle is the most important muscle in the body because it pulls we get adduction and that stops stuff going into our lungs, giving us pneumonia and death. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a pretty important muscle. Therefore, I think the other muscles, the other arytenoid muscles are all kind of working in some kind of conjunction uh, through what he was saying. I mean, you know, take this as you will, but working in some kind of conjunction for, for the purposes of that. That areopagotic aspect of the larynx, the, the striations in the muscle and the, the nerves, nerves that innovate it are all to do with that <coughs> kind of coffee 
reflex to get stuff out. Mm. So I think it's, I think all of that dexterity we can harness as singers. Uh, but I think ultimately it's just a grouping of muscles that when they coordinate, tighten everything and push anything out. Mm. And I think it's probably the simplest way of the body doing that is by having many different muscles doing it rather than a muscle doing it. I don't know. I don't know. That's that's my thoughts on it. Hmm. Well, I was thinking more about the actual movement. So... Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. The, the back and forth and the side. Yeah, so because it seems like that it's quite a... Com- it's probably one of the more complex joints as far as movement's concerned in the body. I mean, it's yeah. not the most complex joint, but in terms of, you know, what it has to do. Um, because but then, 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 you know, I went, so when I delved into possibly about retraction with Mike Hutchinson, which is a hot topic always, um, I don't think it's a thing, but there we are, whatever. Uh, shoot me. What's, what's shoot retraction me. then? Retraction of the false vocal folds, bringing the false vocal folds into the walls of the pharynx. Um, he and who, do, who does that and why? Uh, it's from the Estor model, and right. it's too, uh, I'm not really sure of the rationale actually anymore. Okay. <laughs> um, but but there we are. Uh, so um, it's it's uh, when when you see it dissected, I just don't see any way that that could be a thing. Uh, anyway, uh, when I was talking to him about it, and he said, "Well, you know, we've got to we've got to look at it as though there the anatomy can do stuff that it's not designed to do." Mm. So there's no reason why it couldn't, but yeah, and and he seems to think there is a creator behind it all, you know. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so he, ultimately, his answer when somebody asks him a really difficult question is, "I don't know." Ask the guy who designed it. Right. Uh, and, and I quite like. I mean, it's a bit of a kind of get out clause, but mm-hmm. I do quite like it. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of, you know, I, I'm an atheist, so you know that is that's my prerogative. But when seeing that dissection, you kind of go, "Wow." There's at least a geometrician somewhere who's yeah. you know, made made us up of triangles and circles, so, yeah. you know. And, and, and so, so I don't know, I don't know, but it's, it is a complex joint. Mm. And well, the, the cuneiform uh, cartilage that sits on top of the arytenoid mm. onto it so beautifully. Mm. And again, what has such a dexterous uh, application in the areopiglottic foldis, uh, you know, the ring of the areopiglottis? And, and so, you know, you look at that, and then how the, the deep fascia of that joint attaches to the arytenoid. And, and you go, you know, the cuneiform moves in ways which the arytenoid can counter. Mm-hmm. So there's a two-way tilt that can happen. And, and once I started getting down that rabbit hole, that was it. Lunch. And I think that's great, but I want to know why. <laughs> oh, no, I know, I know. But I don't, Lynn, I don't have the answer for you. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like, for me, this is how I visualise it that when the vocal folds need to close in that valsalva manoeuvre, mm. then they slide closed right. because there's no way that any air can escape, you know, there's no laxity anywhere. When they need to create a sound, then they close with that sort of rotated tilt so that they can now lengthen and mm-hmm. if they need to, you know, for the whee, if you need to do that or yell or whatever it is. Beautifully um, demonstrated there, Lynn. Yeah. <laughs> That's one thing I can do today. Um, yeah, so, but it's really interesting that nobody's really looked into it. And I, I think it's partly because it's just so difficult. I mean, the other prob- 
it's great that one can do <coughs> dissection, but of course you're looking at a cadaver, you're looking at yeah. a dead larynx, you're not looking at a live larynx in action. And I just can't wait to the day when we have the instrumentation to actually look at all these much more closely without being so invasive as to put yeah. a needle into the area. Yeah, so it sounds very exciting. And where where do you see yourself in the next few years? Um, where do I see myself in the next few years? The Bahamas would be nice. Nice. <laughs> um, where do I see myself in the next? So in the next few years, um, you know, I would. So my clinic has just put together its second treatment bursary of six thousand quid. Oh yes, that's fantastic. Yeah. So, so tell us a little bit about yeah, what happened. There. So last year I gave three thousand quid worth of treatment to singers who couldn't afford it. Mm. Uh, they had to apply and you know with their diagnosis etc and I, I had to be sure that I could really help them through it you know so that so it was quite a big operation anyway so we we gave away just over three and a half grand's worth of treatment and so I decided to double it this year um so um so yeah so six thousand quid in 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 treatments um I would like to up that if I could next year maybe mm. nine thousand I don't know that's quite a lot of money um you know, for a small family clinic to be kind of giving away but it's important you know and I, and I, I value healthcare and I, I value um people trusting in my specialism uh I, I think that you know I, I'm honored by that um and my my clinic has just been shortlisted for two um awards so healthcare provider of the year and establishment of the year for philanthropy and and you know I'm in the same category as BAPAM so you know that's pretty mega um I've, I've also, you guys will be the first to know this, I've been uh, elected a fellow of the Royal Society of the Arts just this week. Wow. Um, Congratulations. My, thank you for, um, quote, unquote, my outstanding contributions to social change around vocal health, which is really lovely. Um, and, you know, I would, I would like to, you know, really wear that honour with some pride in, uh, and, and with reason, mm. you know, people have... Yeah, because and I've got to take it forwards now. Mm. So, you know, ultimately, I would like to to make this a philanthropic um, setup. Yeah. Ultimately. But you know, I have a four month, five month old son and a wife, and you mm. know, everybody has bills to pay. But ultimately, yes, I, what I would love to do is um, in the next kind of forty years or so, I guess, of, of you know my working lifetime, I would I would love to. Um, I guess I would love to have given away half a million quid's worth of treatment. Yeah, I think. That's well, knowing knowing the little I know about you, I don't I... doubt you will achieve that, Stephen. And <laughs> singers and performers will be all the better off for it. Well, that's what we hope. <laughs> so thank you. Okay, well, um, I'll say goodbye and thank you very much for joining me and sharing your wisdoms and... My space wisdoms, yeah. <laughs> They'll change by next week. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I... I mean, that's the same with me, you know, yep. constantly reading and talking and, you know, I think one of the things that makes somebody um, make a difference is the ability to... Change. Change, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you. Bye. Bye.